0: So my paper is entitled, The Revision of Civil Law, the Torah, that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament conceived as a book of law. The Torah exemplifies Aquinas' principles. I propose to do three things in my paper. First, I shall set out the kinds of law that Aquinas recognised to clarify his terminology for anyone here who is not familiar with it, and to contextualise our day by opening up the question of what development is possible in any particular kind of law. Then I shall look at what Aquinas says about law made by human societies. Such law should be revised, but judiciously in response to varying social conditions, but also to apply the natural law better. And I shall follow on from Daniel Degnan's article by suggesting that the Torah is an exemplar of how to formulate human law well, and an exemplar for the work of lawgivers. Of course, Aquinas assumed the whole Torah was written by Moses, but modern scripture scholarship explores how it was built up over a long period, incorporating, among other things, bodies of law compiled at different periods. So in the third part of my paper, I shall suggest that this makes the Torah a better and a more challenging exemplar of Aquinas' principles than he could have realised. So, first of all, the kinds of law that Aquinas recognised. We should locate his treatise on law in the wider context of the moral project. Aristotle started his ethics by outlining the common human pursuit of eudaimonia, happiness, and his discussion of virtue emerges in that context, virtue attunes us to our true goal and facilitates attaining it. And Aquinas does likewise. He starts his moral treatise, the second part of the Summa Theologiae, with the pursuit of beatitudo, happiness, fulfilment, flourishing, well-being, bliss. And of course for him we are called to journey into God's own happiness, but that journey validates and incorporates the real, if limited and fragile, human flourishing that Aristotle had investigated. And the structure of the second part of the Summa suggests that it's within the pursuit of Beatitudo, happiness, that virtue is needed. And at a first level of approximation, it's for the acquisition of virtue that law is needed. So one of the aims of law, St. Thomas says, is making people good. Thomas Brings begins his treatise on law as an exterior guide to living well at Prima Secundae, question 90. And at the top of the first page of the handout, you have his definition. He starts with the kind of law that is familiar to us in our human experience. Law is a promulgated ordination. Directed towards the common good made by one who has care of the community. And in due course, he shows how that definition can be expanded to include the different kinds of law. And he sets out the kinds of law in the next question, Prima Secundae 91, and they're listed on that first page of your handout and shown diagrammatically at the foot of the page. So at the top, there is eternal law. That's God's own wise plan for governing the universe. God's wisdom that gets deployed in the structures and powers of things, and in his providential care and guidance of creatures. And from that flow natural law and divine law. So natural law is the way in which the rational creature, the human being, shares in the eternal law. It's our participation in God's wisdom, reflecting on our natural inclinations, using our God-given power of reason, we can formulate what is good and what is evil, which is roughly equivalent to what is humanising and what is dehumanising, and so we can govern ourselves responsibly. And from the natural law flows human law, that's the law of the state, which takes the universal principles of natural law and apply them to particular historical and social conditions. On the other side, there is divine law, that is law put forward by God, law revealed in Scripture. And when he first introduces it, St. Thomas says it directs us to a supernatural goal, sharing God's own bliss. It clarifies matters about which human judgment is uncertain, especially in a fallen world. It speaks about interior attitudes, which he says human judgment cannot discern. And it speaks against faults that human law can't prohibit and prevent without doing more harm than good. And the, and the divine law divides into two, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the old law and the new law, the Torah and the Gospel. And at a first level of approximation, the old law was concerned with the earthly kingdom of Israel, It chiefly judged exterior acts, it contained a strong element of fear, and it was like a pedagogue. Obviously, St Thomas gets that from St Paul. But the new law of the Gospel is concerned with the Kingdom of Heaven. It judges interior attitudes, it has a strong element of love, it's for the mature in Christ. After his general treatise on law, Thomas goes on in Prima Secundae questions 98 to 105 to look in great detail at the Torah. And it turns out that he sees it as doing three jobs, which are listed in the diagram. So the old law, in fact, reveals the natural law. So I've made a connection with natural law by that double line. And the old law precepts, which are in fact natural law precepts, Thomas calls the moral precepts. But then the Old Testament law also provides for the Jewish society until Christ comes, It contains judicial precepts which, I want to argue, exemplify good human law. So there's an arrow pointing from the judicial precepts to human law. But then also, of course, as divine law, the Torah already began to provide for people's journey into God. And that involved, of course, the moral precepts, the judicial precepts as promoting virtue, and also the ceremonial precepts, the rituals God gave the Jews that they might exercise the virtue of religion. And at the top of page two of your handout, you have a brief answer to the question, which of these laws may change? And, of course, the eternal law can't change. It's God's plan, which is identical with God himself. It's above all need or possibility of change. In one timeless creative act, God holds in being the whole cosmos, spread out as it is, in space and time, and he guides its changes and chances according to his own timeless, providential plan, drawing all things to their fulfilment in ways that suit the natures he's given them, and exercising a special care for rational creatures, angels, and human beings. But the divine law has developed. There were early ages of human history in which God gave people instincts to offer sacrifice. He gave Abraham the sacrament of circumcision. Then he gave the Torah through Moses and the new law of the gospel through Jesus, a law that will endure to the end of time. And then human law should develop, and of course I'll come back to that in part two of my paper, and our other speakers will also cover something of that, especially Professor Mead. What about natural law? St Thomas asks whether natural law can change in Prima Secundae four five, but doesn't answer his own question he points out that God and human beings have added to the natural law by divine law and human law. And he says the more fundamental precepts of the natural law apply in all cases, so they can't change in the sense of ever not applying. But there are more detailed precepts which are valid in the majority of cases But don't hold in a few exceptional cases. He doesn't actually ask, or at least answer, whether there are any natural law precepts that were valid at one period of history and not at another. And I won't go into that question, but I shall say something about the development of natural law in the sense of the rational structure of its unfolding and in the sense of the history of its discovery, because that will lead me on to speak about the role of human law. But Professor Brzeziszewski will say more on this subject, either enlarging what I say if I've got it right, or correcting me if I've got it wrong. Aquinas sees the natural law as a structured body of precepts, but never lists all of them. He indicates that some may be discovered or rediscovered over time, and that discovery seems to relate to a threefold theoretical structure of the unfolding of the precepts. That's the middle of page two of the handout. There are the most basic precepts which are self-evident to us. No one needs to tell us of them. Do good and avoid evil. Don't do evil to anyone, but also love God and neighbour. Thomas thinks that those two precepts, the love commands, are self-evident through nature or through faith. It would take too long to unpack and defend that claim. And those self-evident precepts cannot be deleted from the human mind, but through sinfulness, we don't always carry them through into action. Then at the next level down, there are the Ten Commandments, which are obvious deductions from the most basic precepts, requiring brief thought, That anyone can manage. But in a fallen world, people can cease to be aware of those precepts through false persuasion, corrupt customs, and vices. So the Torah presents the Ten Commandments to remind people of what they should know, and it presents them as spoken by God with His own voice because they should be known to everyone. Then at a third level, there are many precepts which follow from the more basic and obvious ones, but require careful investigation on the part of the wise to make them known. Ordinary people need to be instructed and those should have been teased out over time as an unfolding of humanity's understanding of the natural law not a change in the natural law itself but it's a difficult task in a fallen world so the Torah gives us many natural law precepts and Aquinas gives us examples that leaves us with the question does the Torah or the whole Bible contain all the natural law precepts or does the unfolding continue? And to what extent should we respond to changing social reality or modern technology or discoveries in biology and psychology? To what extent would she, which should we be proactive? in seeking to unfold the natural law, perhaps in what's implicit in the Ten Commandments and in other biblical texts. And I would raise the question whether the unfolding of natural law precepts is intertwined with the development of human law. So I move on to part two on the tasks of human law and the Torah as exemplar. The lower level, that third level set of natural law precepts, are like conclusions closely derived from the more general precepts. He can't mean that it's just the way geometry makes deductions from axioms, he says that the principle of non-contradiction operates in all thinking. He doesn't mean that you can deduce all astronomy, for example, from the principle of non-contradiction without looking at the heavenly bodies. And likewise, the natural law precepts follow from the principle of doing good and not evil, but with the help of reflection on human nature on our natural inclinations. So the unfolding of natural law must surely rely on knowledge gained through experience of human psychology and of what social arrangements make for peace and flourishing. So there's a prudential bringing together of universal principles and experience which isn't identical with the business of human law, but doesn't seem to be rigidly distinct from it. There are texts in St Thomas which seem to be a little bit ambiguous. Conclusions are drawn from basic natural law principles, which retain the vigour of the natural law, and there are human laws which, provide for what the natural law doesn't specify, those are determinations, not conclusions. And the conclusions seem on the one hand to be those third level natural law precepts, but they also seem to be the youth gentium, the law of nations, those laws which are almost universal among human societies which are in some sense natural, have a close relationship to the natural law, but are not exactly identical with it. So there seems to be a little bit of ambiguity between third-level natural law precepts, the law of nations, and what human law has to do. And I suspect that's almost a kind of deliberate ambiguity because good legislators have to engage in a combination of natural law reasoning, political prudential reasoning and taking into account changes in social, economic and political conditions and discoveries in human psychology. So I think Thomas is suggesting that wise lawgivers can contribute to the unfolding of detailed natural law precepts, and that seems to be implied also in Prima Secundae 94, which is on natural law, but speaks of how human reason discovers things that are useful for the good life things that go beyond nature's first inclinations. That includes private property. So natural law seems to tell us to make some arrangements for private property, but the precise arrangements belong to human law, but respect for property is part of the natural law, since one of the commandments forbids theft. So natural law and human law seem to some extent to be entwined. So for Aquinas, ordinary people depend on the wise for knowing the third level natural law precepts and for wise lawgivers to formulate human law. And so to symbolize this, the Torah presents God giving those detailed precepts not with his own voice but through Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron seem to become exemplars of what wise lawgivers should do, both in making and developing human law, but also unfolding the natural law. And this seems to me to imply that human lawgivers have a bigger and nobler task than simply making human law. And the mention of Aaron, which doesn't quite fit what actually happens in the Torah, might be a hint that Thomas thinks that priests, theologians, should be involved, not just princes, in developing law. Thomas thinks that human law should change for the sake of the common good. Partly because it takes time to discover what is most useful for human society to flourish and to adjust laws so that they less often fail to apply to particular cases. And also because the conditions under which human beings live do change. But frequent changes of law diminish its authority and make it less powerful because it's when rules and procedures have become customary that they have more force. So law should be changed carefully when the benefit outweighs the potential damage. And on page three of the handout, quarter of the way down, you have the basic conditions for needing to change human law. The new statute is clearly useful. The old one had become very often damaging or the old one is clearly iniquitous. So to judge a revised statute useful could imply learning from history and experience or consulting a think tank. But to recognise a statute as iniquitous seems to require an ongoing testing of human legislation against the principles of natural law and justice. So it seems to me that for Aquinas, human law should develop not just because conditions change, but because we have a duty to apply the natural law to social and political life as well as we can. So I think lawgivers potentially have a huge and noble task, developing the civil law, contributing to the development of the jus Gentium, roughly what we might call international law, and even continuing to unfold, some detailed natural law precepts that have hitherto been unrecognised. So we ought to turn to the judicial precepts, which Aquinas looks at in Prima Secundae, questions 99, article 4, and questions 104 and 105, mentioned halfway down page 3 of your handout. they're given to one people for a limited period, they aren't of obligation anymore, so the Bible does not excuse any society from the noble and demanding task of thinking how best to promote human flourishing here and now, applying the natural law to current conditions with their possibilities and constraints. And the Bible doesn't give us a neat and easy solution. Aquinas at least implies, I think, that the judicial precepts are a model for how this should be done in every age and place. And I suggest that the role of Moses and Aaron in Unfolding the judicial precepts, handing on the judicial precepts, um, is a kind of exemplar of what the wise should have done and still need to do, unfolding the natural law precepts and formulating good human law. In his detailed moral theology, in the Secunda Secundae, Aquinas often discusses provisions of civil and canon law, but I think only makes rather moderate reference to the Torah and says almost nothing on how law should develop. He explains quite a few existing legal provisions, but doesn't critique them. But if we go back to that treatise on the old law itself, Prima Secundae 105, where he asks about the ratio, the rationale of the judicial precepts, we might find some implicit criticism of the practices of his time. So in Article 1, Thomas takes the political arrangements in the wilderness as an exemplar. Moses is a kind of monarch. He has 72 elders to help him who are elected from and by the people. And that suggests that the modern English constitution, at least before um, Tony Blair, was the best. Well... It suggests that a mixed constitution of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy is best. It promotes peace by enfranchising the people. So, might Aquinas have been subtly critiquing some polities of his own time and the ambitions of certain monarchs to absolute rule? Then there's private property. Aquinas takes the Torah to be matching Aristotle's principle that it's good for possessions to be distinct, but the use of them to be partly common. So the Torah allows people to go into other people's vineyards and eat some of the fruit. mustn't take any away. It prescribes that forgotten sheaves and grapes and fruit should be left for the poor to glean. One's sense of property should yield to other people's needs and to a sense of proportion. Aquinas also mentions that it's contrary to the Torah to impose the death penalty for simple theft rather than robbery with violence. And that's something he comes back to in the Secunda Secundi. Was he critiquing kings who imposed the death penalty for poaching on their land? Or regimes which punished simple theft by death, as England did into the 19th century? So there might be some veiled critiques of existing human law in Aquinas. But to summarise what I've said, at the foot of page 3, Aquinas seems to think that the unfolding of detailed natural law precepts is an ongoing task. Is a task for the wise, who must, so to speak, imitate Moses and Aaron. Certainly, human law should be carefully developed by wise lawgivers. And the Torah seems to be an exemplar for how to apply the natural law to particular human communities. And maybe some lessons from the Torah are meant (coughs) to critique imperfect human arrangements that ought to be changed in the direction of justice. But Aquinas doesn't do anything proactively to critique contemporary laws and policies or evaluate the history behind them, or set out a focused programme for their revision. He leaves us to discover how the Torah should inform our legal tasks. But we might find challenges in the Torah. So, I must move on now to the third part of my paper. The Torah as exemplar of Aquinas' principles concerning the development of law. I want to propose a theory that I think could be developed and some areas of research. My theory is that the Torah in fact contains an exemplary illustration of what Aquinas thinks should happen in the unfolding of detailed natural law precepts and in the development of human law. It shows us wise lawgivers proactively seeking to apply the natural law better and to apply it to changing political and social conditions. And as they do this work, they help unfold the natural law more explicitly. The people who contributed to the Torah, of course, carried out their task in a world in which God's revelation, prophecy, was challenging human injustice. So they seem consciously to draw on what we might call divine law, and in retrospect we can distinguish some natural law thinking going on in their work and their discovery. Though, of course, both the natural law and the divine law unfold from God, ultimately, anyway. And I shall illustrate my theory by reference to the laws concerning slavery. The areas of research that I think would be useful would include exploring further, what I propose, trying to apply it to other areas of law like the penal system or provision for the poor. And it should be part of a bigger project, which I think still needs to be done, to reintegrate biblical scholarship, dogmatic and moral theology, and so on. So, over the last couple of centuries, Biblical scholars have explored how the Old Testament was built up over a long period, and I think that stands to bring the text alive in exciting ways. It helps us see the human authors and editors at work in their own contexts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who uses their personal skills and talents, uses their personal grace-filled responses to the challenges of their own time as the Holy Spirit builds up the scriptures. And within the Torah, the Pentateuch, there are three bodies of largely civil law, which bear some similarities to other non-Jewish ancient Near Eastern Codes. And of course we can't locate them within history with absolute certainty, but there's something of a consensus among biblical scholars, which I think we can make use of. So the three bodies of law are there on page four of the handout there's the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 20-23. God utters the Ten Commandments and then gives Moses this detailed body of law. But very likely that body of law in fact was compiled during the time of the monarchy in Jerusalem, probably after 722 BC, when the Assyrian Empire had dissolved the northern kingdom of Israel, the political system had shifted and exiles from the north came to Judea in the south. So the Book of the Covenant is formulated within a developing political situation. But then, if you turn to Deuteronomy... 12 to 26, we find a detailed, longer body of law which follows a kind of sermon by Moses which mentions the Ten Commandments and the precept to love God. And it's almost certain that this book of the law, those chapters which are now in Deuteronomy, were presented to King Josiah in 622 BC or bear some close relationship to what he was presented with. His grandfather Manasseh had been a vassal of Assyria. He died in 642. His son Amon succeeded him and was assassinated by his courtiers. And the people of the surrounding region killed the courtiers and put Josiah on the throne at the age of eight. So their representatives in fact ran things for quite some time, and it may well have been those caught those um people of the land or their representatives, their scribes and thinkers, who put together this body of law as a conscious updating of the book of the Covenant, and probably in dialogue with the prophetic tradition, which Jeremiah was the chief representative of at the time. And they present that body of law to Josiah when he's 25 years old and he uses it fairly clearly as the basis for some sweeping reforms taking advantage of the changed political situation when Assyria has lost its power and influence. But then Moving forward again in history, we have the Holiness Code in Leviticus 17 to 26. And that's part of what scholars call the priestly writing, a body of history and ritual, which as we now find it runs from Genesis into Numbers. Almost certainly compiled either towards the end, or soon after the Babylonian exile, so around 538 BC. And scholars used to think that the Holiness Code was an existing body of law brought into the priestly writing, but they're moving towards the idea that in fact, it was composed as part of the priestly writing. As a new law to provide for the Jewish people restored to their own land, But at a time when they could have no monarch of their own, they were under the Persian Empire. And in fact, the priests provided, in a sense, the local leadership. And I think we can, with some certainty, discern within that story a picture of human legislators working in changing circumstances With a concern, which comes through in their writing, to make loyalty to the true God, so to speak, take flesh in social and legal practice. They would have been in some kind of dialogue with prophecy and with the scribal wisdom tradition, as if they're drawing on divine law and kind of natural law thinking, There are all sorts of features of the Torah which we could explore, but I think the law of slavery is especially illuminating because it develops significantly. So in the Book of the Covenant, it is extremely wrong to steal, to kidnap a human being, to sell him into slavery. And that prohibition, very strong, is a permanent feature. We might conclude that the African slave trade that was practised, including by people from this country, was always very clearly under God's condemnation, whatever the people who engaged in it were thinking. But there's an allowable form of slavery in the Book of the Covenant. If someone's in debt or hardship, he can sell himself or sell his children. And it seems that that form of slavery had developed roughly over the century before the Book of the Covenant was compiled. So perhaps this body of law is actually placing limits on the extent to which a fellow citizen can be treated as a chattel, controlling a practice which had grown up. A slave, a male slave, must be given his freedom after six years. A girl bought as a concubine must be treated as a proper wife. Perhaps in response to Amos's criticism of cases where all the men in a family used her as a sex object a master is allowed to beat his slaves but mustn't kill them or mutilate them and female slaves don't have all the rights of the male slaves and when a male slave does get his freedom he's not allowed to take away with him a wife he married while he was a slave, or his children. So he might well want to remain a slave, and he can do so for life if he chooses. So arguably, this primitive body of law is a first start in the attempt to make humane an institution that has grown up as society has become urbanised, and stratified. No one could see how to do without debt slavery and at this stage in history the rights of the slave owner seem greater than those of the slave despite being limited. Moving on 80 years to Deuteronomy we find a significant mitigation of slavery. Was it Reflecting changed practice, or more likely was it a vision put forward by the lawyers, which they hoped would become a programme of social improvement? In Deuteronomy, male and female slaves have equal rights. Both must be let go after six years, and with a redundancy payment, so to speak, so they can make a fresh start on an independent life. There's nothing about selling your children or buying a concubine, but there is provision for a woman captured in warfare. Perhaps that kind of thing had been going on. She must be a wife, not a concubine. If her new husband doesn't like her, she shall be given her freedom, not sold. And further, in Deuteronomy 23, we find, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose within one of your towns, where it pleases him best. You shall not oppress him. Deuteronomy commands us to cooperate with slaves' attempts to escape from slavery. Of course, the rabbis looking at the whole Torah couldn't accept that. They thought it referred to foreign slaves who escaped into Israel. And of course, St Thomas couldn't accept it either. He thought it was slaves who escaped because their master wanted to kill them or use them for sinful purposes. But I would argue that the Judean lawgivers of of the 620s BC did actually want to strike a blow at the very idea of one person being owned by someone else. So there seems to be a programme for social improvement and the beginnings of an emancipation of slaves in Deuteronomy then moving forwards another 80 years or so to Leviticus, we find an Israelite may not be enslaved at all. He might want to sell himself because of debt, but he should be treated as a hired servant, not a slave. Is not a good idea for an Israelite to be sold to a non-Israelite inhabitant in the land if he does have to sell himself a relative should purchase his freedom. So we have a basic picture that slavery is repugnant to the dignity of those God has chosen as his own. That's also a vision of how things should be perhaps born of the experience of exile in Babylon. But the Holiness Code is not a utopian vision. It still takes account of constraints imposed by economic reality. So the time that someone may stay in service has grown. The general release, the Jubilee, is now every 50 years Perhaps there was a memory of the attempts to release slaves every seven years just being unworkable. And because you shouldn't be enslaving Israelites, there's provision for Israelites to possess non-Israelite slaves. So the status quo continues in some way. So if in fact Leviticus is 80 years after Deuteronomy, we've had an advance and some compromise. I think we could usefully unpack that in much more detail and no doubt scholars have done an awful lot of work on those and similar laws. But I think we can at least glimpse a trajectory of these laws that exemplifies Aquinas' principles. Because we find a concern of the lawgivers to prohibit serious injustice. We find a distinction between what law commands and what it merely tolerates. We find a prudential awareness of limitations imposed by social economic reality. We find a revision of the law at judicious speed, and we find the revisions inspired by a reflection which is theological and humane, roughly equivalent to a concern to apply better divine law and the natural law. So I think we have an exemplar here of how social structures and laws should be developed urgently but not rashly, so as to correspond more and more closely to ideals like human freedom and self-determination, cherishing the bonds between husband and wife, parents and children, the equality of men and women, exchanges of goods and services in which parties engage with each other on a more or less equal basis. We could, if time permitted, but I'm already beyond time, we could trace the trajectory into the New Testament and find challenging texts about slavery there. I think we could develop an argument that slavery is in principle against the natural law and that even the Old Testament gives us grounds for saying so. But it bears witness to times when temporary slavery, due to debt or poverty, was not experienced as seriously dehumanising, and it was legitimate for legal systems to permit it, but to restrain cruelty against slaves, so long as the laws were regularly overhauled in the direction of increased equality and freedom, with an implicit ideal of eventual total abolition of slavery. So I've left many questions unexplored, such as why earlier bodies of law remained in scripture alongside later bodies that were meant perhaps to replace them, why under Providence the whole Torah was for so long seen as a single body of law. There's much more research to be done but I hope I have at least opened up the possibility that the development of the judicial precepts, as explored by modern biblical scholars, (coughs) matches Aquinas' ideas about how civil law should develop and should do so as part of our task of both applying the natural law better and knowing it more fully. Thank you.